Hello, and welcome to Rising with the Tide. This episode is part of a mini-series of episodes from our older podcast, the Lancaster University Extinction Rebellion podcast. Hello and welcome to episode six of the LUXR podcast. My name is Skander Mana. I've got with me Johnny Fay, who's a graduate of natural sciences from Lancaster University, and David Tyfield, a reader at the Lancaster Environment Center at Lancaster University. David, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, so we've got you here today to talk about some really important issues, um, something that I personally feel like we don't talk too much about, um, and which we'll discuss further into this podcast, which is uh, the current situation with um, science and the way that science is studied, the way that science is done. Um, and then also we will dive into the current situation in terms of environmental uh, issues in China, uh, what China is doing, and all of David's research around this. Um, so, David, would you like maybe to first start off by explaining sort of what you do um, at Lancaster University and what you've done in the past concerning these topics? Sure, thanks. So, um, just an introduction, I'll be brief on this then. Um, yeah, so, you know, as you said, um, I'm at the Lancaster Environment Centre. I'm in the social science group uh, of the Environment Centre. Um, and uh, my training, my background, I suppose, in the social sciences and philosophy uh, is something around innovation studies, uh, uh, sociology, science and technology studies, uh, political economy. So I'm interested, um, the broad field I'm interested in is um, how uh, new technologies uh, interact with society and how society shapes those new technologies uh, and innovations. Um, and in the Environment Centre, obviously, I have a particular interest in environmental questions. So uh, I'm particularly interested in, in environmental innovations. Uh, and how are they emerging? Are they emerging fast enough? Uh, mm -hmm. If not, why? Um, and where are they emerging? And as you uh, outlined or you know, gestured towards in the introduction, a large part of my work, majority of it really, has been on what I think has been a neglected case, um, which is China. Uh, it's a very important neglected case. Uh, it's now the largest um, absolute greenhouse gas emitter on the planet. Uh, mm. And with such a large population and such a large economy, if it doesn't decarbonize, um, then it doesn't really matter what anyone else does but um, we'll look again at that in a, in, in a moment but doing that empirical work has also raised all kinds of questions for me about how do we think about climate change and that in turn has raised questions for how do we uh, think more generally uh, in particular how do we do the science of climate change or how do we do science at all um, which is uh, the other aspect of what I'm very interested in at the moment. I think these are, they seem to be very, uh, very sort of current topics that um, personally, yeah, like I said before, I haven't really heard too much about. So I'm excited to get into this. Um, shall we maybe start with the, this idea that, that maybe science, especially climate science, isn't totally being done right? Mm -hmm. Could you maybe expand a little bit on that, on, on your research around the way that science is done? So I, my thinking on this begins really with looking at 
how social science in particular was or is still thinking about climate change and um and comparing what it's finding and what it's saying with what is then actually happening in the world uh in particular in terms of the slowness of change um so this has raised various questions for me about um how we conceptualize climate change but then turning the mirror back on ourselves thinking about how we're thinking about science um doing the science itself um and i suppose um we can come at this from two different angles we can either uh, as i just laid out think about well what is a productive way to think about climate change uh, and then uh, from there how do we do research on it um or we can start by thinking about uh, what is science of climate change what is science per se generally about um yeah. and then comparing the two in a sense uh, so maybe i'll start that way around um the the, the, the there's a very diff um well uh, established model for science um which is that uh, we take an arm's length uh, view at something out there in the world. Um, uh, we distance ourselves from it as much as possible so that uh, we're not um, imputing or, or affecting what it is that we think that we're studying. Right. So like to stay objective as possible. Yes, exactly. That, so so this objective with quotation marks. <laughs> exactly. You know, this is this is the um, these aren't just um, you know uh, preferences. They're norms, right? They're they're what will get you accepted or rejected through through peer review processes. You know? um, uh, and then the goal is to characterize the objective reality. Uh, as well as possible, um, and then hand over that description to others in order to do something with. Um, so, um, if we then take this other aspect of, well, what is climate change? Um, climate change, it seems to me, or however you want, whatever kind of language you want to use, I mean, the language of the Anthropocene is increasingly around us as well. Um, and in a, in a sense, I think the Anthropocene captures it better because we are immediately confronted by the fact that um, climate change is not uh, one easily characterizable thing. Um, it's a, a complex system process. Uh, and um, to the extent that there are great and indeed foundational uncertainties about how things play out. Um, there is no possibility of reaching that first definitive diagnostic characterization of the thing and then deciding what to do. Um, we are within the midst of an unfolding still uncertain complex system we are part of that complex system you know, climate change is an anthropogenic process it hasn't happened without human input 
Um, so we can't just uh, uh, abstract human agency uh, from climate change, work out what it is, and then decide what to do. It just makes no sense. Mm -hmm. um, so what this points to is that um, this characterization, the, the, the presupposed distinction uh, of the usual way we do science between um, the object, which is not affected by what it is, but the, um, the way of learning about it uh, does not affect what it is, um, just is completely incompatible with what it is that we're trying to understand with climate change. And right. in a sense, I'd say it's, it's even worse than that. Um, so let's have a look at, uh, let's just think qu quickly about, you know, when we think about science of climate change, I think the default, you know, we've had these various marches for science over the last few years. The, the default is to, um, especially in the polarized social media politics that we have today, that um, there are the baddies who are these nutcases and climate skeptics and anti-science weirdos, mm -hmm. um, who for whatever reason, whether it's just pure ill faith or for all kinds of moneyed interests or for power, are denying the scientific reality of climate change. And then on the other hand, we have the good guys, excuse me, the good guys who are the scientists, the scientists telling us how bad it really is. Mm -hmm. um, and so that very much, uh, that kind of um, narrative very much puts science on the side of the angels. But um, with the greatest respect to all my scientific colleagues, and of course this includes me, of course we wouldn't be in the situation we were in without the extraordinary um, world-creating powers of science. So, um, let's not at the very least gloss over that right science is deeply implicated in creating the problem of climate change in the first place mm -hmm. um so and it and in terms of me saying therefore it's worse i think that to the extent that we continue to play this surface story of good good science against bad anti-science and we ignore the the rest of that iceberg of what science actually does um, then we will only ever be uh, involved in a game of di uh, diagnosing how bad things are, while the vast majority of science continues to contribute to the problem. Mm -hmm. um, so this has to change, right? Uh, yeah. we, we have to change um, not just at the fringes, how science is prosecuted, but the mainstream of how science is done, so that it goes from being um, mostly part of a problem with a certain amount of it trying to row back over the surface um, to it mostly being part of the solution. Yeah, is, this, is, is there not like a, a sort of issue with this in, in trying to kind of personify science as a, it feels almost like, you know, this thing which is just, which I personally see as a bit of a neutral not even an entity, because I, I feel like we're talking about science as an entity almost. Um, mm -hmm. whereas, it's practice, it's, it's yeah. linked yeah. to technology. So I, I, I feel like maybe even just to add on what you said, maybe this idea of even qualifying science as 
good or bad maybe even at least it makes me feel a bit weird about it because i just see it as like you know the same way that a a knife can can be a a tool or weapon i Mm kind of see science as just a this neutral thing that just is um yeah i mean there's certainly a way in which i liked very much what you just said there but also want to qualify it a bit yeah of course of course um so what I like about it is the idea, this this analogy of the knife, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because it, it uh, chimes very nicely with a way of thinking about knowledge, which I think has to be at the core of the transformation of science, which is that um, knowledge, science, truth, whatever you want to call it, um, is not per se good, neither is it per se bad it's dangerous it's Mm -hmm. it's it's dangerous because it can do things right right? okay i see what you mean Um, uh, like a knife right so a knife isn't good a knife isn't bad but it's dangerous right Um, and indeed anything that is powerful in the world uh, is dangerous in that respect it's um what it is not is neutral yeah um because that, I think, takes us back into the excuse of the scientist saying, well, it's nothing to do with me. It's just the way that my science has been abused by other people. Right. So in a way, it's potential for danger cre- takes away its neutrality. I think so. Exactly. It's transformed the whole world, every society in the world today. It's Absolutely. Been completely transformed. By, and I thought it was very interesting, your point about uh, these the narrative being good scientists versus uh, bad anti-science. Mm. Because I, I get the sense that a lot of people are kind of lost in in the world that's yeah. been transformed by science. Yeah. And so their reaction against science is an expression of not knowing what to do with themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not just actually bad anti-science, it's also anti-expertise, right? And then that morphs into, is anti-expertise uh, wicked, nasty populism, or is it uh, participatory, democratic, you know, positive, progressive change? You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's much more messy than this seem, seemingly dualistic Manichaean yeah. um, process um, that narrative uh, plays out. And if we go back to the idea of it being dangerous, it's as you say, Skander, it can never be neutral. But what it points us to is the question of which science where. So it, right. it, it asks us a question of being much more specific, much more, and science therefore has to be much more specifically accountable, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just that, oh, this is good because it's science. Yeah, right. that doesn't, yeah. That doesn't, that's not the end of the argument. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the beginning of the argument, actually. It's, okay, this is science, therefore we need to take seriously what worlds it can be creating. And we can only do that by looking at what this specific science will do. So it's, it's, a, it's a much more, um, uh, it's, more, it's more nuanced, it's, it's more empirical, actually. Yeah. Uh, in that respect, it's much more true to the spirit of science. Yeah. Um, but, um, so the... But I mean, to, just to to go a bit further, I think that you know what we're talking about here ultimately is a profound transformation of the underpinnings of science. 
and in particular of what you might call this um not scientific mm -hmm. but scientistic ideology right. so by that i'm i'm drawing the distinction between um science as um scientific that is as as a way of looking at the world and as an ideology that says that um uh, truth resides in science and science is truth and that's all that there is in a sense right mm -hmm. um so you know this goes right back to um the enlightenment the uh, the second half of the 18th century um and this uh this emergent worldview uh, mm -hmm. at that particular time where um of course this is going from um a uh, a largely christian europe um to the, the 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 disillusionment the disenchantment of the world um and um uh, the extraordinary again um self-fulfilling world-making powers of treating the world as inert um and as um something out there mm -hmm. which then science is a, a key part of the cycle of learning how to master we're, we're learning how to um control reality and to fashion it to our own ends right. um reality has nothing to say to us it's dead so all we need to do is to learn the facts of the matter about the way reality is, and then we can do with that what we want. Right. And so, so after sort of having diagnosed this problem, is there, is there a kind of solution that, that's appeared to you that you found throughout your research for this? Because it seems like a big issue, yeah. at least. Well, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, so this is the suggestion, right? And um, unfortunately, this kind of way of looking at the world is so deep-seated and in particular amongst the institutions and practitioners of science amongst academia in particular you know the, uh, you know for to to take up any job um you have to go through a period of apprenticeship and that means that pretty much everybody that makes it into the uh, the academy in the end mm -hmm. has been deeply schooled in that worldview right yeah that's true yeah um so it might be that out in, in other professions um people don't think that way actually i think our culture particularly in western europe particularly in the us uh, these this is this is pretty much ubiquitous everybody thinks this way anyway but then you wear it you you are encouraged to wear it as a badge of pride as a scientist mm. um so First of all, you know, we have to ask to what extent is there the will to change this within the scientific community? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how much th there is that will. But even if there was the will, how do we go about changing it? Because if we look at the history of the way in which those views have changed in the past, they don't really change by di directly attempting to change them. Mm -hmm. What they change um, by is by changing the way we do things such that we ask different questions of reality and of ourselves 
and then in the background we change the way that we look at the world right um and this i mean so we can't in a sense change it directly and i think we should give up on that mm -hmm. um and that might be dispiriting uh, especially again in our in our contemporary culture where we think that if we have a problem we should like diagnose it and then fix it mm -hmm. um so we've identified the problem is this underlying worldview therefore we should just offer a different one and change it yeah i don't think that's going to work but i think it's actually good news because the way in which we change things is by asking different questions that is using different tools in other words by doing science differently and if we do science differently then we simply will be presented with the um uh, what's the word i'm looking for um with the a better benefits. method in the sense. yeah the just the, the, the change just the in benefits of doing it differently yeah um so you know, what does doing it differently mean so this is the this is the um initiative that we've got in that environment center right. uh, which we're which we're calling science for the anthropocene mm -hmm. so i mean i just explain that phraseology a little bit um the 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 idea there is that we have a huge amount now you know just journal upon journal upon journal um every month pumping out important informative articles that are science of the anthropocene they are yeah. the diagnostic um sorry the diagnosis of the terrible state that we are in um what we don't really have though is science for the anthropocene science contributing to being able to survive or even thrive in the anthropocene right um okay and so what does that look like well in a sense, the, um, the question of the Anthropocene is twofold. It is, what is the Anthropocene? And then it's, um, what do we do about the Anthropocene? Mm -hmm. um, now, given the way that science is structured, given that underlying worldview, what tends to happen is that the, what is the Anthropocene question attracts people who are um, analytically minded who want to define this new condition mm -hmm. um, and so in you know across the disciplines natural and social science um, they will be doing their field work doing their research doing their reading and writing up definitions of what the anthropocene is which what this has led to is an explosion of definitions of the anthropocene none of which are really talking to each other and very little impact on the problem of mm -hmm. what is the Anthropocene, such that we can do something about it. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the uh, the analytical versus uh, everyone else kind of debate in philosophies, uh, where Absolutely. where it seems like some people are just worried about how do we define knowledge and how do we define power, and others are more concerned Absolutely. about the way of living. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the terrible situation we've come into, I mean, I mentioned the Enlightenment earlier, the whole point about the whole brilliance of the Enlightenment in the 18th century was then uh, was that movement saying, well, look at what Christianity, scholastic Christianity has taken us into. 
know, the proverbial debating the number of angels that can fit on the head of the pin. But we are in exactly the same situation now uh, in our analytical disciplines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody can keep up, even if they wanted to. So all this is doing is adding to the complexity of our understanding of the world and our lack of understanding of the world, our ignorance of the world as yeah. well, because we can't do anything with it. So yeah. then you have the other question, though, which is, um, what do we do about it? And of course, that tra- attracts a certain kind of person, a certain kind of applied scientist who likes getting their hands dirty and likes going out and doing something, and they just want to change things. Mm-hmm. But the problem there is that, um, especially in the case of the Anthropocene, is that you can't act without presupposing something. And in that particular case, what you have to presuppose is the nature of the nature of nature, the nature of the planet, so right. that you can you know what you have to do. So in right? a sense, you need the first group to have you even the, the second group. group. <laughs> exactly. So at the moment, we have this total disconnect between these conversations. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're, they're mutual impatience, right? They, 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 it's not just they're not talking to each other. They, they both think that they've got it wrong, that they're asking the wrong question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those who are saying, but look, everything is changing. We need to know what, what there is. I um, say, well, we can't possibly act yet because we don't know what it is. And then those who are saying, we've got to do something because we've only got 10 years, um, then have to act on the basis of presuming a state of the planet, which is precisely what is changing. So what we need to do is we need to connect these two up. And one way in which it's um, this sort of simple solution that uh, we are proposing, that I'm proposing, is that we invert, as it were, the valence or the register of these two questions, by which I mean that the what is the Anthropocene is a practical question, no longer an analytical question. In other words, you only ask what is the Anthropocene by saying, by treating that as a strategic question. So you ask it somewhere, right, in terms of, um uh, what is the anthropocene let's say um for, for the northwest for china yes or for the or even more locally than that for the northwest of england mm-hmm. right what's it going to do to rainfall what's it going to do to sea level rises right what's it, um just in terms of climate um weather and climate change but also what's it going to do to um greenhouse gas emissions and then what does that do for the local industries we have to play all this the way the whole way through so what is the anthropocene is not an analytical question it's a pragmatic and strategic question would you you ask this question about sorry to cut you off would you you ask this question as well in terms of uh, on a global scale or do you think that would you say that we've kind of gotten lost a little bit in the global scale and kind of forgot about these localized contexts that maybe that's where we need to look at the Anthropocene. Yeah, I, I get the sense. Sorry, sure. I get the sense of what you're saying is, is that it's by trying to abstract everything uh, and make it a system that's usable everywhere that we've reached yeah. this point of disconnect between the intellectualization and the practical people. Yeah. And that's it's by engaging in smaller uh, communal uh, Type activities uh, and uh, gaining responsibility for smaller uh, 
places that we can reconnect these two. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Hit the nail on the head there, Johnny. The, the question is about systems, right? Um, the, the, this disconnect between the intellectual and the practical um, is a new thing, because if we go back only a few years, then the emergence of this, the, the, the way of science that we I've been describing, you know, the default mode model of science, actually, in the first instance, is incredibly productive. It creates new ways of thinking. New, mm-hmm. We don't call them system models. We call them theories or whatever, right? Um, it's intimately linked with technology as well. Exactly, which illuminates what we can do. It illuminates technology, which then feeds back into the science. Yeah. So this is a, a productive feedback loop, right? And there's a there's a sort of word for this you now that, um, that appears in your research, um, a sort of third type of, of knowledge, right, that this leads to. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, so thank you. Yes. Yeah, so the um, uh, we're jumping around. I'm, I'm yes, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yes. Uh, let me just. Yeah. I'll talk about that briefly then. Mm-hmm. So uh, it seems to me that in all of this, there is this key third type of knowledge which has been systematically denigrated, overlooked through the Enlightenment, through modernity. Um, and it it has a rather sort of un, uh, uninviting Greek ancient Greek sound about it, right? Oh, it it, it, it doesn't sound very phrenesis, exactly. Oh, yes. yeah. I was guessing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the whole point about um, uh, phrenesis. Uh, so why was it dumped? It was dumped by modernity uh, because it was strongly associated with uh, the philosophy of Aristotle uh, and. Um, the scientific revolution, Descartes, then moving into the Enlightenment. The whole point of this is that Aristotle has been claimed by scholasticism and it's the very source of the, that, the problem at that time in the relations to knowledge. Um, so instead, what gets um, uh, pushed to the fore are these two other forms of knowledge, which are there in Aristotle as well, which are episteme, that is just um, natural law, um, the uh, the objective know why of of anything uh, and techne which is this hands-on uh, know-how um, and then this gets sort of institutionalized into this division of labor between science which is the, the episteme and technology uh, which is the techne um, but what gets completely lost out the um, jumped out the picture is phrenesis which is this um, uh, situated practical wisdom and if we go back to Aristotle Aristotle is quite clear that phrenesis is in fact the the, the primary the foundational form of knowledge mm-hmm. uh, and we can actually see that this is this is the case even in the most high-tech um, of scientific labs today because um, the, 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 the person working in that lab clearly is mobilizing episteme in terms of the design of the experiments. What are they trying to test? What natural law are they trying to um, uh, understand better? They are also mobilizing techne in terms of the, their various sort of embodied skills with the technologies and the equipment that they're using. But how these two things actually play off each other in any given instance and what what form of knowledge to be drawn upon in any particular instance 
calls upon an, another lower or higher, whichever way you want to think about it, form of embodied judgment, which is a form of wisdom. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, it is the development of that wisdom that is the product of science insofar as it is productive. So mm -hmm. science, you could say that the ultimate product of science is scientists and the, and the, the, um, the practice, the collective practices of scientists. Mm -hmm. um, so to bring that all back to, you know, what we were saying about science for the Anthropocene um, is that um, those two questions that I outlined of what is the Anthropocene and um, what do we do about it, or rather, how uh, do we do the Anthropocene? Um, in, uh, in standard languages, uh, standard positions, um, the first is the, is, is the question of episteme, mm -hmm. and the second one is the, que uh, the question of techne. And they're not mutually responsible, neither are they actually necessarily in conversation. And in fact, in this particular case, we're finding they're drifting off into uh, separate universes. Mm -hmm. The way we bring them back together, therefore, is to underpin them both by transforming the goal of the whole enterprise from the mastery of an, uh, of an external, objective, dead, possibly hostile world to the cultivation of strategic wisdom. Right. Um, and it seems to me just to pull the whole thing together um finally that the 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 problem that we are presented with in being confronted by complex system problems of which climate change out ultimately is in fact only one of many that we are confronted with at the moment um is that we have to admit that we are always already situated within those complex systems and therefore, what is not possible is mastery of them at arm's length. Rather, what we need to do is to get good at doing them within them, which is precisely right. this process of a situated wisdom. Phrenesis. It sounds very Heideggerian. <laughs> but yeah, in some ways, I, I, I don't want to go down that line. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, no, we're, I don't think our... Our listeners um, are quite acquainted with Heidegger potentially, so let's not let's not dive into too much philosophy. But um, yeah. no, that that was a really really good summary. I think, um, I mean, hey, whatever I didn't understand from reading uh, the works that you've done before, I now I think I've I've gotten it, <laughs> I've grasped Great. it. Um, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, what's so confusing about it, Scander, yeah. is that it definitely in in. Uh, Part of getting used to thinking complex systems, thinking in complex systems, thinking with complex systems, is this transformation of view where we do precisely find ourselves within them. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is that it's very difficult to present in a logical, we started here and we ended here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that in a linear unfolding of logic, um, because you actually started off in the in the system. Yeah, of course. All that happens at the end is that you understand where you were better. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's 
you lift sort of bootstrap lifting kind of process <laughs> which means that yeah. you have to throw yourself in at the deep end in some way which makes explanation complicated i think it's it's been the fantasy of science especially in physics where uh, the basic assumptions of newton are that's that things that are real must be reproducible anywhere in the universe yeah uh, in any reference frame or hmm. with einstein i mean sorry um, and so we've we've built up a whole ideology around this idea of being able to abstract away from the world uh, mm -hmm. sort of in some kind of intellectual realm and and kind of not interact with it and look at it objectively mm -hmm. but what, what you're saying seems that that because science arises uh, always with technology, mm -hmm. it, whatever we're doing is always interacting with the world in, in, on some level. Absolutely. It's, it's, so a, we, it's a relational yeah. perspective, exactly, right? That knowledge, um, knowledge can only emerge between, uh, in the relationship between um, um, something that we, after the event, label a subject and something after the event that we label an object but there is a moment of always a moment of relation and it's um, uh, that's what just completely is ignored uh, in the, the the standard dualistic understanding yeah right? and I, I think this hints a not just disconnect of the um, the techne is that what you called it the techne yes. and the uh, the episteme. <laughs> yes, very yeah. good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my memory of Greek words isn't the best, but um, yeah, the disconnect that you hinted there, I think, and uh, then the disconnect between those and phrenesis, I think, hints at um, a sort of bigger disconnect, even of of man and nature, um, in the sense that we've, like Johnny has said, we've tried to abstract everything, um, yeah. see everything in a vacuum. Um, you know, we'd look at rainfall levels, for example, in climate science, but we don't look at how that rainfall affects people or the plants that, it, like, within that same research. I mean, uh, I feel like everything, every piece of, of academic research that I read on, on the climate science seems very disconnected from environment as a unit, in a sense, mm -hmm. a, a complex web of interchanges. And um, just to, before we kind of move on to maybe... Uh, uh, your research on China. I just wanted to ask on on this topic: um, What does this look like in practical terms for you in in climate science? So, yeah, how how do we take this sort of uh, theory, in a sense, right, and turn it yeah. into actually uh, phrenesis? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I've I've been tying myself up in knots about this for a while. I was, let me say, I was tying myself <laughs> up in knots about this for a while um, because. Um, the whole the whole challenge of complex system, system thinking, as I set out, is that um, especially when we're turning to thinking the planet. I mean, I mean, this is this is just too much for us <laughs> to cognize, right? Um, and you know, the training as a scientist um, makes you think that what I have to do is to build an even bigger model, which is even more comprehensive. Right. Until yeah. we've got everything in the system. So what this leads to is it leads down a blind alley of working towards a theory of everything. Um, because that's the way that we're taught to think. We're taught to look for um, substantive theoretical explanations as what shows that 
um, uh, something has been achieved um, scientifically. But um, what the real my realization was that um, we can't we can't think the system of the planet. We cannot do it. Right? There is no way we can think the system of the planet. Mm -hmm. What therefore? But neither can we give up mm -hmm. on the system of the planet. Uh, the, the default approach, including of me, is to start by trying to build a bigger model, uh, to, 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 to try and build um, a systemic understanding which we can then draw uh, or, you know, uh, compute in some way. Mm -hmm. But actually, um, that's precisely the wrong approach. And what we actually really need, you asked, you asked me, what does this actually look like? Well, um, phrenesis means um, strategic, practical wisdom. Um, and I think we should take that seriously because what we should really be doing is building new tools, new, new, new ways of doing science, which ask, uh, which force us to ask the questions in the way that I've, the, that way around, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than the other way around. Right. Yeah. So it's almost um, like you yourself, did you feel like you're committing that error of of looking at things not in a phrenesis way? Well, I mean, I certainly have in the past, yes. Yeah. Um, and um, and even, it, uh, I mean, this, 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 this condition goes a long way down, right? So even when you're thinking about phrenesis explicitly, you might end up falling back into the trap of not thinking about phrenesis phonetically. Yeah, for instance, yeah exactly. Right? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what I think it looks like is a growing portfolio of new tools about how we do science and not just how, but who does science? Mm -hmm. Who does science with whom? Um, where do they do it? In what fora? Right. For what purposes? Mm -hmm. um because you know th there's this famous uh, quotation i think it's buckminster fuller who said if you want to change the way someone thinks don't try and change the way don't teach them give them tools and they will change the way they think for themselves right mm -hmm. uh, and that's exactly what i think we need for science per se but specifically for science of climate change and yeah. urgently for the science of climate change you know we need it we need it urgently because we are not seeing um deep decarbonization yeah that's no, not that's happening true. um so uh and i do believe that science can be part of the solution i don't believe it can be the solution i believe it can be part of the solution mm -hmm. rather than part of the problem but it has to choose it will be one of one or the other um and so what we need to be doing is developing new tools which are part of a learning process, process which develop that new understanding and on the ground as practical understanding. What do we do here about the Anthropocene? Um, and that in turn will refine those tools and so on round and round and that will grow momentum and it will spread. And then lo and behold, everybody is doing something better about climate change. Yeah. All right. So yeah. it's about changing the, the kind of material conditions, uh, 
condition how thoughts, how scientific thoughts develops. Really. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if basically, if if in a sense, science is allowed off the hook um, by um, not being uh, forced to ask the right questions, mm -hmm. it will continue to ask the familiar questions. And we know those are not the right questions because or else or else we would be solving climate change. You know, I don't like that phrase, solving climate change, but you know what I mean. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. That's, so, for, so that's for example, like um, just to to kind of go back to uh, so that our listeners can maybe grasp um, really like in in practical terms, if you oh. were to do if you were to study scientifically something about climate change in the northwest, for example, like let's say in Lancaster, mm. um, do you have have you begun or found a sort of method um, to study something like, for example, rainfall or 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 whatever, or the uh, deforestation, these sort of things, in specific contexts, or or has uh, is there what I'm trying to get out is um, is maybe is there an example of scientists sure. around the world that are doing this um, correctly? Well, this might act as something of a nice sort of segue to talking about China because, I mean, to date, while I've been trying to set up various things at home, as it were, in the northwest. Um, my initial uh, experiences and experiments with frenetic methodologies have been on my work in China um, and where that uh, has in part been driven by but also has to contend with a completely different um, situation not least in terms of um, social and power relations you know um, how do you do research in the northwest of England as a Brit in a society where there's um, freedom of association and freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, as opposed to as a, uh, a Western foreigner in a, in a country where none of those things can be taken for granted. Um, so, you know, very different circumstances. Um, but uh, some of the work that I've done in the past, it started off with qualitative um, discussion, qualitative, um, ethnographic, almost observation uh, about what was going on regarding the adoption of various kinds of um, low carbon innovations in China. And, and then forms of um, uh, wishing, you know, so uh, in a sense, the methods may not sound sort of groundbreaking, it's, it, but it's the questions you're asking with them that make all the difference. Yeah. Uh, and then the what that led to um, was some stakeholder workshops where we went through um, some scenarios which we built up on the basis of um, the input that we'd had from um, our various qualitative research and where those scenarios were deliberately very different but all of which were considered plausible um, so what we're trying to do here is to get the, the stakeholders to first of all reckon with the fact that the future really is open right um, what that then does is it is it schools a certain um, uh, shift in mindset where you don't assume that the experts have it all in hand and everything's going to be okay 
uh, which is again a, a really significant um, obstacle I think to doing something about climate change. Um, you present them with these different scenarios, you ask them what is plausible or implausible about them, you ask them to reflect on where they would be uh, in these different futures and then you ask them to bring it back to the present. What, what do you want to do in your line of work? And we were looking at the future of urban mobility and we have people from you know, very very different walks of life we had just um just as it were citizens right so yeah. people who are car drivers or walkers or public transport users uh, we had various ngos um in transport we had uh, some uh, in the automotive industry some in the future of automation um, of um of transport um so uh, new digital sharing vehicle companies, etc. Right. Asking all these different stakeholders, and they don't have to come to a consensus. All they need to do is to have some new sense as a result of this orientation to the future about what they might do differently. And mm -hmm. coalitions may emerge or they may not, but there's been some change in terms of the action that's been taken. Uh, so moving on to China, I've been looking at what's going on in China about innovation and low carbon innovation uh, in particular um, for 13, 14 years now. Um, and what's really noticeable in particular to me, having been following it all this time, is that I guess in the last two years, um, the issue has gone from being a, a remote backwater, you know, for, for, the, for the specialist uh, to being uh, there in the headlines. Um, and also, therefore, with China itself going from um, something of, of uh, treated as something of an uh, of an irrelevance um, in the low carbon futures, low carbon innovation discussion, um, to uh, being depending on where you look, um, either hero uh, or uh, arch villain, um, and uh, there in the headlines um, and in fact uh, that's a very important thing to notice about uh, China and low carbon innovation is this essentially contested debate um, about uh, is it going to save the world or is it going to fry the world. Mm -hmm. um, How is it possible that China has such uh, dual sort of persona for with people how, how can people see it do you think uh, as both a hero that could save the world in terms of climate change um yeah. you know in brackets or how can they see it as a an arch villain like you said that that will potentially cause um all of our sort of ecosystems to uh, to collapse yeah well i expect that probably there's a certain amount of um, dual schizophrenic uh, view uh, within one with, within any one person about China, but I think that they definitely there's a polarizing of camps as well. You know, there are those who will largely argue that China is the hero; those who uh, see it as the villain. Um, and of course, part of the point here is that there's very much more at play in this debate than whether or not China is, in fact, uh, very good. Um, at low carbon innovation or not. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a, a whole load of political baggage uh, 
placed on top of this. Um, so again, without being crude, uh, in, in, you know, this, so this is a crude um, distinction, um, an overplayed one, but um, uh, there was a lot of literature, a lot of pro-China literature that then plays through um, the, the fact that China is doing so well in renewable energies mm -hmm. or electric vehicles, for instance. Um, the biggest electric vehicle fleet in the world now. Um, but then there's a lot of anti-China um, literature, um, a lot of uh, comment, um, often associated with uh, the US or um, American fear of being eclipsed by China, uh, which, which either, it has, it has various... Um, uh, options at its disposal to, to to rubbish the China case, right? It can say that Chinese innovation is actually not very good, um, or it can say that it's largely derivative, or it can say that it's uh, not at the cutting edge, or it can say that the that China's environmental record actually is abysmal, um, or that um, there's no way that its its technologies are going to be adopted all over the world because no one's going to uh, accept. Um, Chinese surveillance, for instance, you know, there are various ways in which this can play out. Um, but uh, where my work has taken me is actually there are there is if, if you dig deep, um, and you, this is just scratching the surface. But if you dig deep, you can actually find that there is a huge amount of plausibility to both cases which actually just confound, adds to the confusion. It adds to the, um, I don't know where the hell I stand. Um, <laughs> this goes back to, I suppose, the difficulty of creating, understanding everything in one narrative. Really. Absolutely, definitely. I mean, so um, both, of, both are true, right? I mean, so I mean, let me just give you a couple of examples, right? Um, China is unquestionably, um, uh, at the forefront of renewable energy technologies, mm -hmm. um, both in terms of uh, the, the, the domicile of the most important uh, industries, companies in wind power, in solar thermal, in solar PV, um, increasingly in nuclear power as well, obviously in hydropower. Um, China is the place which has all this capacity and potentially uh, can roll it out across the world because it wants to do that as well. So, you know, this is a very, very good news story. Um, it also, you know, so in the UK, we have um, this climate change law. Uh, I actually don't know the state of play across the world, but I, I know that the UK was certainly one of the first. I don't know how many other law, any other countries um, still yet have a law uh, to hold the government to account for meeting climate change targets. But the UK, yeah. you know, without being self-congratulatory, um, uh, can pat itself on the back for being uh, in that position. Yeah, no, it's true that the UK was one of the first, if not, uh, and still remains in the, in, for example, like the, 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 great the minority, G8 absolutely. and stuff, yeah, in the minority, for yeah. sure. Uh, China's gone one further. It's written this idea of ecological civilization into its constitution. Um, it's it's transformed its um, uh, its ministries to create one 
environmental super ministry because the central government recognized that the environment was not packing, um, packing enough punch um, in terms of making uh, local uh, local governments, local cadres make decisions for the benefit of the environment rather than for economic um, growth. So it's it's done a lot to to push for um, uh, ecological um, development, however you want to call it. Yeah. So great news stories. There's other aspects of that as well in terms of its uh, its uh, technology, um, which is that um, China is unquestionably uh, now a superpower in digital technologies, which mm -hmm. are going to be, whether we like it or not, incredibly important in dealing with climate change. How is a, is a question which yeah. we need to think about. But nonetheless, China does have that capacity. There's no, no possibility of writing China off now um, as um, an also-ran or just a copycat. Um, so all these good news stories. Um, and then there are all these bad news stories, the number one of which in, in climate change is that the single greatest um, source of emissions um, is China's use of coal. Um, and that remains an almost indelible black mark. Mm -hmm. um, so there have been various stories about whether Chinese use of coal has peaked or not. It's sort of plateaued, then it went up again a little bit. Um, it's not clear whether that's just going in lockstep with economic growth or whether there is actually a meaningful decarbonization or at least a decolization going yeah. on in China. Yeah, because we just want to touch quickly on the, the point that uh, we learned in previous episodes with um, Dr. Alexander Dunlap and Dr. Andrea Brock, for, both from uh, Oslo and Sussex universities, yeah. um, where they really explained to us that um, one of the big problems with renewable energy is that they're intrinsically tied to fossil fuels. In fact, um, Alexander, I remember, refuses to call them renewables, calls them fossil fuel plus energies. Um, and the, They're supplementary and the, or additional, definitely. Yes, and yeah. the, the real problem may yeah. be actually the amount, the consumption of energy. And, and I wonder if, you know, because China has not reached a, a ceiling yet um, in terms yeah. of CO2, uh, CO2 emissions, what do you make of this digital uh, side of China that is, you know, ever increasing and will definitely require more and more and more power as well? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, um, the whole question of what does the digital mean for climate change, I would say now is probably the, the key issue, actually, regarding innovation and climate change. Um, uh, for, for various reasons. One is that, um, you know, if we go back to right back to the beginning, what I was saying about what is climate change and seeing it as a complex system problem, mm -hmm. um, then um we what what that means is that um dealing with climate change from a, a technical or in preference a socio-technical perspective is never going to be just a matter of replacing um existing technologies which use fossil fuels with the same thing but now using renewable energy or electricity that's just not going to work 
Um, it's um, so, um, and so what that shows is that, I mean, a lot of the emphasis to date has been precisely on treating climate change as an energy issue. It's about yeah. uh, where does the energy come from? Um, the result of that is that even uh, the innovation studies trying to understand processes of transition has almost entirely neglected what is quite obviously in the meantime, the most um, productive, um, momentous uh, change in the way that we are living, which is what's going on with the digital. Mm-hmm. At, at best, uh, at best, it treats um, the digital as um, uh, a separate issue, which is possibly a bit dodgy because it uses a lot of energy as well. Yeah. Yeah. But at worst, it uh, completely ignores the digital, or even worse still, it presumes that because the digital increases efficiency, it that in itself will deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, completely, therefore, neglecting what is, in a sense, the number one lesson of um, human, uh, of you know, the, the curves of energy use in lockstep with emissions. Um, under um, the global capitalist economy we have at the moment, which is that of the rebound. Um, So the the efficiency is not in the efficiency uh, gains, which drive innovation, which drive the economy, um, never play out to system level efficiencies. And they don't do that because they are the very um, dynamic through which the system grows. So we can't presume that um, individual level efficiencies will aggregate to system level efficiencies because we know that they do the opposite. That individual efficiencies lead to system growth. Um, So focusing on energy has been a complete red herring, basically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I see it a little bit like sugar addiction in the sense, whereas, um, you know, we have quite like a sort of weak sugar that that people put in, in let's say like in cakes and then when a, a stronger sweetener is found people think that it will be used on a very small amount but actually yeah. as people you know get used to it they then demand more and more and more and then it, absolutely it's, yeah to the point more more even now it. where this and this has been this has gone through our fruit and veg now mm-hmm. yeah. so if we could miraculously you know if they, uh, we could miraculously taste uh, a red pepper from 1950 and from 2020, the, the, the red pepper that we have today would be as sweet as a fruit in comparison. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. These things, are, 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 well, I mean, they're right there in, in the taste, you're right. Um, so what I was saying is that the energy, the way of thinking about low carbon transition as a matter of transforming our energy is, is a red herring. And what we need to be thinking about instead is, well, what is the actual innovation that's going on in the world? Mm. What is that? What could that do to help us with decarbonization? Right. Not just to um, speculate. How do we get to the to the end point? We don't know what the end point looks like. What we know is that digital transformation is coming, is happening. How can we shape? harness digital innovation 
so that it really does contribute to decarbonisation and doesn't, on the other hand, make it very, very much worse. And of course, we have to say that to the extent when it'll be very much worse, um, that is not going to have equal impact across the world. Yeah. What that will mean is that it will massively, in, uh, massively increase uh, uh, fractalized inequalities. Mm-hmm. So that someone can drive um, their posh electric car, feel extremely green and virtuous, while uh, actually using a huge, and maybe they're on a renewable energy tariff, but actually aggregated what that leads to is that they are the users of fossil fuel. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, while everyone else is basically, you know, uh, left high and dry and probably blamed for it too. Yeah, that's, that's true. Taxed for, yeah. Do you think that um, this points to a sort of a, f- a fear of really changing the system because i feel like that's yeah. personally i feel like that's why people focus so much on technologies because they fear changing their their habits the core of their habits and the core of of society the way the society is built um, and yeah. we try and find a, a sort of a way out and technology seems like you know a new religion of sorts uh, as a savior it's all, i i always say that to my friends who who think that technology will save us completely from ecological collapse and climate change that yeah. to me it feels too religious i don't i don't have faith i, I don't like um to put faith in something without knowing for sure whether or not it's going to destroy the planet you know yeah i mean so i've always found technofascism a slightly odd and self-defeating well self-contradictory position right because it it, it always plays itself as well technology is just a means Right. Mm-hmm. But let's really take seriously that that claim. If technology is really just the means, what it is, is it the means for? And if we have pre-given ends for our lives, for our society and technology is placed upon that, then to the extent that the technology works, it will be delivering those means. Uh, so th- those ends. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can't then say, well, technology will save us because we've just said that the whole reason yeah. that we technology is acceptable is because it doesn't change the ends of society yeah yeah and it seems it seems well it seems to me that the ends are determined today not by some careful planning of where we should lead society but just by capitalist incentives uh, absolutely that, yeah that is the you know the profit of the food industry that this decides what we're going to eat and it's the profit of uh, the electric car industry that decides uh, what kind of cars we're going to uh, drive in the future. Mm-hmm. And going back to your point about China, because you said yeah. that China had written in its constitution that it has to be, uh, I don't know how, what would the word you used? Uh, it would it, be well, the, the phrase it has is ecological civilization. Mm-hmm. I would say yeah. what that means is still very much up in the air, but it's, yeah. it sounds like a good start, right? So we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Because I wonder, I wonder to what extent that's a genuine uh, claim. Sure. Because what do, what does the Chinese government, for instance, say about their fossil fuel consumption? What's their explanation of how it fits in with the ecological civilization? Yeah, I mean, so I was, I mean, I was setting out just there, sort of the 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 uh, the pessimist narrative about China, and your your question has brought us straight back to it because um, certainly at the moment. Um, you know, 
people saying coal has peaked. If anything, um, following the COVID shutdown, the COVID shutdown leads to the possibility of economic un, um, wobbles, right? Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the government has to stimulate the economy, right? Um, and bear in mind that in, in China, the Communist Party has to stimulate the economy. Yeah. Because if the economy doesn't work, then the system will implode. Yeah, it's a social contract of sorts. Absolutely. It's the foundational system. It's this foundational um, social contract, at least from, from the 1990s, right? Communism is just a name now, right? The Communist Party as a system of government is accepted to the extent that what it really delivers is year-on-year -year economic growth. Mm -hmm. um, and so if that does not happen, then there will be people asking questions of the system. And the government know this, right? So they have to stimulate for their own survival, for the survival of the whole system, for the survival of the juggernaut of the, the re-ascendancy of um, the, chi the Chinese civilization as they see it. Um, they have to stimulate the economy. And how do you do that? You do that by opening the, 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 the shuttered coal power stations. So there have been explicit measures over the last um, six months or so of the government distancing itself from trying to reduce coal, right? If, when it comes down to it, um, if, uh, if there's a possibility of green growth or black growth, they will choon, choose green growth. Mm -hmm. But if there is a possibility of no growth or black growth, they will choose black growth. Yeah, they have they have made some sweeping um, policies though, like choices. Um, I remember seeing um, I just have this I just found this article again from the BBC from January of this year that um, China, you know, being one of the biggest users of plastics, um, apparently will be banning in major cities by the end of this year should be banning all non-degradable bags um, sure. in all cities and towns as well by 2022, which is which is huge. That's, that's so much more yeah. than our, our 10p for plastic bag, you know, <laughs> which uh, I see students uh, at Lancaster and, and honestly all around the world, people don't seem to care that much about an extra five or 10p for it, it does oh. reduce consumption. I mean, I think that's been proven now, but not by mm -hmm. nearly enough. Um, so maybe, yeah. maybe, you know, these big sort of wide bands um, are something that China can be commended for. Absolutely. So, I mean, what, what this brings us back to, though, is this extremely contradictory picture mm -hmm. uh, about low carbon innovation or low carbon transition uh, in uh, in China and its impact globally. And um, uh, so, I mean, what my work has then done is that, you know, trying to explore this through through the lens of phrenesis. Mm -hmm. um, but with an important twist um, is that, so just to talk about phrenesis briefly. Um, so as I said, I introduced it earlier in terms of Aristotle, but the, the term in itself has had something of a resurgence uh, over the last 10 years or so um, from the work uh, in particular of um, a Danish scholar um, who's now at Oxford. Um, in English, we would say his name is Flivbjerg. Um, I think probably it's nothing like that in Danish. So my apologies to any Danish listeners. Um, but um, 
the way that he and his colleagues and collaborators and me um, uh, use this terminology of um, phronesis is to acknowledge that um, what, what it incorporates, as it were, and I don't want to get um, too technical or, or social um, theoretical here, is um, the, the acknowledgements um, particularly coming out of the, the 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 work towards the very end of his life in uh, by Michel Foucault uh, about knowledge as um, never uh, just uh, a neutral uh, abstract sphere uh, in itself, but um, always as um, a a two a double a double sided sword, as it were. Um, that is both uh, knowledge and power. Uh, and so uh, what this means is that um, uh, the way in which we know things um, plays out in terms of the power relations that then that form of knowledge uh, constitutes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and vice versa, the, the way in which we, uh, um, the way in which we, the way in which society organi is organized um, uh, gives rise to various truths in the same way, right? Yeah. So I'm sorry that that wasn't probably very clear. No, no, no. I think uh, I think we're we familiar with that. You're, you're okay. All right, good. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the the key point here is that if we bring this sort of uh, Foucauldian twist to phrenesis, then what we're interested in um, is not just um, as it were, um, a timeless um, situated practical wisdom, but a, a wisdom that is situated and therefore um, self-consciously um, and deliberately aware of the power relations of the thing that it is that you are participating in and that you are trying to learn about. Yeah. Um, now, what this... Uh, so to... That's the way I've been um, looking at China. If we then bring that back to China and to Chinese low carbon innovation, what we find is actually an extraordinary, uh, the reason that both those two stories are true is because in fact, what we have is an extremely dynamic picture um, of um, an enormous country, um, very diverse. We, we, I mean, this cannot be repeated enough for Europeans such as ourselves, you know, there are provinces of China, single provinces, which are bigger than Germany, yeah. um, which is the biggest country in Europe. Um, there are cities in China, which are bigger than the Netherlands or, or uh, you know, in population or Ireland or... Or, um, or Belgium, <laughs> where we come from, where we're both sitting Finland, right now. Yeah. Whatever. Exactly, yeah. So... Um, this scale really needs to always be borne in mind. Mm -hmm. This means that when we look at China, what we see is this incredibly dynamic hubbub of activity, which is a process of creative, of creation. It's creating something new, mm -hmm. um, which is very much still emergent. We are by no means, and if you, uh, you know, I don't know quite how old you, you, you two guys are, but in your lifetime, um, China has changed beyond recognition, just as it has for your contemporaries who are Chinese and for their parents. Yeah. Uh, and that 
um, that process of change is by no means, we haven't just reached the end of it now. It's going mm -hmm. to, I think, continue. Where it leads is a very interesting and open question. Yeah, because there have been, I think, clear signs of, of some sort of slowdown, at least at times. In the economic, in the economic in growth, the economic absolutely. Growth, yeah. Yeah, but in terms of social change and social technology, technological change, um, again, I would say that in 20 years' time, China will be, again, as different, mm. as unfamiliar to us uh, as is China in 2020 to China in 2000. At mm. least in, in that respect, I think potentially change might even be accelerating rather than decelerating. Yeah. I feel like maybe the, the way that we see China as this dual entity, actually, could we say that China is, uh, in terms of phrenesis and such, is the best understood? Because I feel like we don't have this duality about many other countries, if any. I feel like we only, for example, if we think about, um, let's say, I don't know, Norway, right? You think in terms yeah. of climate change and such, I feel like we don't have this sort of dual story. Uh, we mm -hmm. just have a single prevailing idea of, uh, at least I think in most people's minds, of Norway being, uh, you know, a very progressive country, uh, spearheading sort of these yeah. sort of things, when in reality, you know, it's a petro-state. <laughs> it's, yes. uh, Norway is a total petro-state. And um, I feel like maybe this understanding of China as a very dynamic, Absolutely. like you said, diverse understanding of China is actually maybe the way we should view all countries as well. Fantastic. Yes. I mean, exactly, exactly. I mean, in, in a sense, um, as a Westerner, um, I can neither hope nor even intend to make any difference to what China does with my research. Yeah. Right? But what is much more interesting um, is on the one hand to think about how China is changing and therefore the world is changing, of which I'm certainly a part and which my society is certainly a part, but also to do what you just suggested, Skander, which is to say, Look at, the, look at China, it seems completely um, on the surface the same as the Western country, and yet if you scratch below it, it's, it's immediately obviously different, mm -hmm. and that's played out in this essentially contested debate about hero or villain. But that then brings to the fore all kinds of key understandings about um, uh, emergent changes, so the way in which um, Low carbon innovation is primarily uh, a process of the transformation of power in society mm -hmm. um, and where that is still very much in process. And then we can bring that lens and we can look at our own place and we can say, well, this is true here as well, actually. But I don't see it because actually I'm the goldfish bowl in the water of my society. I don't see the water of my society until I've gone outside. And then I see, wow, yeah, there, I'm, actually, I'm actually also swimming when I go home uh, in the water of, of power relations, which, which the technologies of low carbon innovation are changing or not. And of course, this comes right back to your point earlier about um, using technology as a way to uh, defer or defeat even uh, possibilities of system change mm -hmm. because um, and, and we let it in a sense get away with that because uh, because as I said we're swimming in the same water right yeah. it's only when we can actually look at the way in which the introduction of a new technology um, will have 
some effect on the power relations of society, uh, that we can begin to ask the question, well, which way do we want it to go? Yeah? And if we don't ask that question, then it's just going to go with the, um, the trajectory of least resistance, which is the established trajectory. And the established trajectory is ever more growth and ever more use of fossil fuels. So it's this dynamism, I suppose, this, this sort of open-endedness of China in particular, but, but also of other places that is the pos that gives us the possibility to uh, go phrenesis rather than being stuck in this uh, intellectualization. It, yes, exactly. I mean, so one of the great things I think about, um, you know, I've said that we can look at China and then we can bring that home, but I think it's even more important than that because in fact, China um, up until maybe 2018, um, as I said, looking at what was going on in China was um, uh, a fringe interest for the anorak, right? Um, today and going forward, it isn't gonna be like that, right? Increasingly, it will be an insistent question upon us what do we think about China is doing about climate um, change? What do we think it's doing about innovation? What do we think about what it's doing about digital innovation as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is, this is already now playing out in terms of America's trade war with the US, the, the potential for deglobalization, for the fracturing of the world into two separate spheres of influence, two separate spheres of internet. Um, that this is the real geopolitical situation that we find ourselves in. And trying to put um, a positive spin on what is potentially a very perilous situation, um, I don't think anybody who really can, who spends any time thinking about it can really welcome a new Cold War. It's a disaster. Yeah. It's a disaster for climate change because there is no way that we can have global climate action if we have two worlds. Yeah. No, and two sure. worlds who are suspicious of each other. Yeah, I, I think um, people who, who wish for, for this kind of um, thing don't really realize the extent to which this would affect everything we know. To put a positive spin on all of this, to the extent that um, we in the West and hopefully our friends and colleagues in China Right. Because it doesn't matter how hostile the government is, there are 1.3 billion people in China. Right. And many of them actually have very positive dispositions towards the West. So let's bear that in mind. Right. Mm -hmm. We're not at war with the Chinese. Um, that um, to put a positive spin on this, this this insistence, this permanent jab. Right. We talk about the stick and the carrot. The, the sheer incommensurability of China to the way that we think about the world is an incredibly important stick that will make us, it, it will force us to think about low carbon innovation and specifically digital innovation as a political phenomenon, as, a polit as an issue about the transformation or preservation or reproduction of the status quo of the system as it is. And this, it seems to me, is an extremely productive situation to be in. Turbulent and scary, but productive. I just want to say one last thing before we finish, and I think this is 
a, a sort of a key thing which I think brings everything together in a way, um, which is that um, uh, you know what, what I was saying just now about um, technology is merely a means. Science also is merely a means. What we can see if we look at how these things work through a complex systems um, perspective is that the outcome that happens from the propagation of these system dynamics is there at the outset. Mm. So that if our worldview is one in which um, we are alienated from the planet, from nature, where it is inert, where it can take all the, we throw at it, yeah? Um, where it is just there to be used by us, um, and it is um, hostile, um, so we can just, therefore, the whole point of our pro project is mastery of this world, then what we'll, we will create is precisely that reality. We will create a hostile planet. Conversely, if we start by saying that what we are trying to build is wisdom, strategic wisdom, where we are learning to live together well with each other, with the planet, then the outcome of those efforts will be precisely that outcome. We will be developing uh, a planet and a humanity that can live together. But the change in the technology will never take that step. We have to change the, 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 the underlying motivation of all our efforts. The fact that they are underlying, though, means that, as I said earlier, it's very difficult to tackle them directly. Many people don't even recognize them. So what we need to do is to need to, we need to change the tools of science, the tools uh, of science in society, so that people are forced to ask these questions of themselves and of their communities and societies. And then, and then, we, will, then we will change. All right. Well, that was, I think that's, yeah, I think, that was a great conclusion. Um, I would apologize for keeping you much, much longer than I had asked, but I will not because I learned too much and I'm too happy that I learned this much. So instead, I'll okay. thank you, David Tyfield. Thank you so much for, for coming on. It was, uh, it was wonderful to get to know you and your research. And I think I can say for, I safely say for Johnny and I both, that we'll definitely keep an eye on, on your research and, and definitely go and read more because this has been really, really interesting. Um, thank you very much. Really enlightening conversation. Thank you. It's great. Thank yeah. you both.